Hello and welcome back to uh, a special edition of Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, this is really going to be an episode of Ask an Atheist Anything. I was a guest on their show and uh, both the hosts, Andrew and Matt, were kind enough to let me uh, post up uh, the audio from that show on up on Skeptics and Seekers so you guys can listen to that. But yeah, I, I strongly uh, recommend you guys check out the Ask an Atheist Anything podcast for yourselves. Uh, go on to the reasonpress.net uh, website. They've got a lot of good stuff there for you. Um, so yeah, without any further ado, let's get into the episode. Okay, enjoy. Bye-bye. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ask an Atheist Anything with your usual hosts, Sandra and Matthew. I'm Matthew, as always, the English one, and we have another guest with us uh, today. This time we've got Dale, who, for those who've listened to all our episodes, will be a familiar voice. Welcome, Dale. Hello, thanks for having me on. It's, it's great to have you and have a formal question for us to chew over. So the question that you asked me in email was, when do atheists have the burden of proof? Do you want to give me a bit of feedback as, or background as to what prompted that question and we'll go straight ahead into discussing uh, what that results in. Sure, so so yeah, I think this is something that is really important for me in terms of establishing, clearly establishing who bears the burden of proof and when. Um, because I, I find that a lot of times that gets confused when Christians are having conversations with atheists and vice versa. That there's a lot of shifting uh, of the burden of proof uh, in inappropriate ways, and, and that happens on both sides. So, um, yeah, th this is something that I've tried my best to, to get across, um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I've communicated my take entirely clearly. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted to sort of bring this question up and give us a chance to tease out, okay, well, when exactly does an atheist have the burden of proof versus a Christian or, or you know, a theist or something like that? Now, so if thinking? I say never right now, is, is that good enough? <laughs> then it's I done. I, I think we can call it a day, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, you've just made an affirmative statement there, Andrew, so you don't have a burden to prove that. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse. You <laughs> right. So, coward, cue the, cue the ending music. <laughs> that was a great show, guys. <laughs> yeah. So, Dale, um, uh, I, I assume though that uh, you're not talking specifically about uh, the question of is there or isn't there a god. You're talking about the the more grey and murky arguments surrounding the question of whether or not there is a god. You know, like. Uh, the, that's the fine-tuning of the universe or the, the problem for me. Well, are you thinking about those arguments as well or are you thinking specifically just about whether or not there's a God? Nope, th so this is general. Uh, it, it applies to anything. So so I guess I'll, I'll start. My, my simple answer that I, I think ultimately we'll all agree on, I say that the person, whoever they are, that makes the claim bears the burden of proof. If you're making a positive claim, then you bear the burden of proof. So, so that could apply to atheists uh, in terms of God's existence. If you take the traditional definition um, that that I do, atheists are actually making a positive claim um, that God does not exist. Then they would bear the burden of proof. If you have a more you know, I'll, I'll let Andrew give his take on that, but it, it doesn't have to be on that question. If you make a claim that uh, chicken McNuggets are better than chicken strips and you're an atheist, okay, you've got to bear the burden of proof on that. Or 
if it's the problem of evil. So, so yeah, it is the broad uh, question that I have in mind. Okay, yeah, I certainly agree with you on the um, the affirmative claim part. You know, you make an affirmative claim. Obviously, it gets a little bit more murky if if the claims are um, what's the word for are more negative. Say, for example, you say there's a god. I say, well, I don't see any evidence for one. Therefore, I don't accept it. If I'm then challenged by saying, well, look around you, how can you not see that as evidence? It's a bit harder for me to prove the statement that what I see around me, I don't count as evidence. So sometimes I think it can get a little bit muddy. Mm -hmm. But certainly I, I do accept the broad point that yeah, if I make an affirmative claim, categorically there is no God, I have a burden there. How I, I have no idea how I could support that claim. Uh, with, as as a as a proof claim, so yes, which is yep. probably why I don't make it. But yeah, certainly there is a burden there to be held. Cool. Yeah. And, I don't, and... Uh, yeah, I am. I am. Uh, I accept that there are multiple kinds of atheism. In in like manner, there are multiple kinds of of Christianity. Some Christians will say, for instance, that they're absolutely certain that God exists. Some will say. Um, God is the best explanation, which is not a 100% affirmative claim, as for instance, uh, some Christians will take Pascal's wager and, and simply say, well, why not live as Christians because it does no harm, uh, which is a very agnostic claim about the existence of God, but more, uh, more a social claim about living as Christians. Uh, and, and then there are, uh, so we can graduate down that scale to the agnostic who uh, is not convinced one way or another that God exists and may not be willing to accept Pascal's uh, Pascal's wager uh, for that reason, right? That I, I can't uh, decide that it's more likely that God does exist, so why would I live Pascal's wager if I, if I had goals in mind um, that weren't particularly elucidated through Christianity? Uh, and we can go further down the scale and we can get to uh, weak atheism. So weak atheism is the idea that there has not yet been enough evidence to demonstrate that a God does exist. In that sense, I am a weak atheist. There may be uh, some argumentation about God. We will certainly talk about some of that today. I'm not making an affirmative claim uh, about no God existing. I think I am more in the, uh, in the vein of a Stephen Hawking who says... Um, God may or may not exist, but the scientific record is complete. And then there is the affirmative atheist who would say, God does not exist. Now that atheist is actually taking on the burden of proof uh, in the same way that a Christian who would say, um, God is more likely, or graduating up the scale to, I affirm that God definitely exists. Yeah, yeah. I'll just, I'll just say I 100% agree with with what you said, Andrew. The the way you phrased it, I, you know, I, I I don't think we should get hung up on terminology. So that you know, the way I define atheist might be different from the way you or other skeptics might define it. That's fine as long as we define what we mean. And once it's properly defined, if if you are making a positive claim on a balance of probabilities then you bear the burden of proof. If you're not, if it, if it truly is just a, a lack 
of a, a claim or a lack of belief, you know, I've heard the evidence for it and I find it wanting, then you, I would agree that you bear no uh, burden of proof as an atheist in that regards. That's fair enough, because there will come a time in this conversation um, where I will probably make an affirmative claim, and if I don't accept the burden of proof in this conversation when I should, then you should call me out on that, right, because I've made an affirmative statement. My atheism is not an affirmative statement, but this conversation will certainly go further because it wouldn't be a very interesting statement if you just said, well, I think there's God, and I say, well, I'm not convinced, and, you know, so we're certainly going to make some affirmative claims back and forth, and we ought to be very careful to uh, challenge each other about the burden of proof because that's what this show's about. Do you mind, uh, just out of curiosity, um, do you mind if I just ask you both, and um, so let, forget about the word atheism whatever term um i think andrew called it an, an assertive atheist um or i've heard matt dillahunty say he's an anti-theist or something like that um would, would both either you andrew or matt would you guys claim that you can actually make an affirmative claim that god doesn't exist in any way or any degree or is it truly just look i the evidence i've seen for and against doesn't persuade me i i'm truly in in the middle i i don't know what's real or what i don't know kind of thing i'm definitely not in the middle i'm as far over in the no camp as it, it is physically possible to get without stepping over the line that says categorically there is no god and the reason why i don't step over that line is because of the burden of proof now call it cowardice call, call it whatever it's it's a claim i can't prove so i don't step over the line to make it uh, an affirmative claim. There is um, a, a point I would like to, to make, and I, I, I ask it more as a question than make it as a point, but it, it doesn't really matter which way it's phrased. Um, but I'll phrase it as a question. If you don't see evidence for something that someone else claims to exist, at what point is it reasonable to say, I've looked, I haven't found, it doesn't exist? So, that's, so that's kind of the position that I, I take with the existence of God. People tell me that there is a God, and I've looked, and I am not convinced that I've... Uh, in my Christian days, when I was leaving Christianity, I spent a good many hours, um, sometimes on my knees in tears, trying to answer that question. And so my position now is, I looked, and I looked for, as far as I'm concerned, long enough as is necessary to have found it if it exists. So I'm at that point where it's, it has been claimed, but the claims haven't panned out. Therefore, it is good enough to claim that it doesn't. But I don't step over that line purely because of the burden of proof issue. But I'm at that point where I've looked hard enough and it can't. Uh, it's a story I've told before. I can't remember if you were on the court there when I told you. It was when my daughter came to me and said to me, the... Um, the tooth fairy is really you, isn't mm. it? Yeah. She'd crossed that line where she had realised that you know this evidence about the tooth fairy being a real thing doesn't doesn't work anymore. What's the next best solution? And she uh, found the next best solution and went and challenged it and found out that she was right. Well, that's where I am. I've looked. I haven't been convinced. I haven't found. So I'm now looking for the best next best solution, which is it doesn't exist, and there, it, it, it's, it's the phenomenon is explained by other ways. So that's 
where I am. Okay. Uh, your question. It, it does, um, and it, it actually spurred... I have a quick follow-up just before I, I turn it over to Andrew to get his answer on that. Um, okay, what about with regards to the Christian God and Christianity? Would you step over the line with regards to that then, or same deal? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be really naughty and say which Christian God. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you, um, the mirror... The <laughs> I saw that one coming, but, you know, there are... You know, is it the one that's going to send me to hell or is it the one that's just going to annihilate me? Is it the one that created the earth in, in seven days or is it the one that used evolution to do it? You know, so, you know, I, I could really be really cheeky and break all of these down into into different varieties of God. Um, It'll take 2,000 years. <laughs> yes, possibly. Um, I, you know what, I haven't actually properly thought that through, but I'm far more likely to say if you're going to nail down specifics of, a, of the characterizations of a, a god. So the Christian god has specific characteristics that Christians will claim. I'll say, no, that god can't exist. And my logic behind that god being impossible to exist is that Christians are very fond of telling me that I can't test god and I can't scientifically detect god and I can't know anything about god that god doesn't reveal to me. And when different Christians tell me different things about that God and with different characteristics about that God, the only rational conclusion I can come to is that none of them are absolutely right. All of them are wrong about something, and most of them are wrong about everything. So, therefore, that description of God can't exist by those logic. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, and, and Andrew, same, same two questions for you. Sure. So, answer the first one, I'll... Uh, I'll use another quote, so I sort of answered with Hawking earlier, I'll answer with Isaac Asimov now. Uh, Isaac Asimov was a scientist as well as, a, as, a, as an SF writer, for those who don't know uh, who, he, uh, who he was. He was a chemist uh, by training. And he said that he couldn't prove that there was not a God. But he was so strongly convinced that there was not a God that it was no longer worth his time to investigate. I think I can't quite say that it is no longer worth my time to investigate. Otherwise, we wouldn't be recording here, right? Although I guess I could take a slightly more affirmative approach and say that the reason I do these recordings is because I think uh, people who are in pursuit of God are in pursuit of, of a fiction, and we do each other a favor by challenging each other to believe true things. But I do think that... In, in the more general sense, I take Asimov's uh, I take Asimov's claim to be one that aligns with my own uh, personal convictions about God. I spent a, a long time looking. I worked for the second largest apologetics company in the United States. Uh, you know, my background is theology and computer science. I've looked at God in, in a number of critical ways. I, you know, I speak a little Greek. Uh, you know, I, I, I had a lot of these uh, these college classes, et cetera, et cetera. I've looked deeply at Christianity, and I find that the claims that Christians make about the Christian God do not equal the evidence that exists for those claims. Okay. Uh, what was the second question? I don't know that I covered them both. Um, sort of. Well, it was the same. Like, uh, okay, so that God in general, uh, uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you're like Matt, you wouldn't step over the line. 
um, but you found the evidence wanting and you're at the end of your rope. You, you, uh, you think you've done enough uh, to kind of give up on being a real seeker there. Uh, now, what about with regard to the Christian God? And when I say the Christian God, I mean, I can be cheeky and say the biblical Christian God or, or the mere Christianity Christian God, but... Um, yeah, then, it, I, then I'd say um, the, the God of James or the God of Peter or the God of Paul. I don't want the listeners to laugh this off. It's a, it's a reasonable question because if you really wanted to, to narrow that or I down, I think you would fairly say, what about the Christian God that you accepted before you became a skeptic? Yeah, yeah. Your, your understanding of the Christian right. God. There, there we go, yeah. Right, right. Because, because whether I accept your understanding or not, I did have an understanding of the Christian God at some point in the past, right? And it would be fair to challenge me, I think, on why I made the decision to drop that acceptance, right? Because I, I never accepted any version of God other than my own to begin with, right? You only accept the version of God that that you understand, you, know, you have friends like Gary Habermas, right, and, and you don't agree on every tenet of Christianity. I think you and I have talked about that sort of in passing on other, on other shows, yep. right? And, and so I think it is fair to say that the Christian God is a very, very personal God to whoever accepts the Christian God, he or she or the Trinity or whatever, and in that sense, the God that I did promote in the past is one that I eventually found to be untenable. Perfect. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm I just wanted to sort of get your guys' takes in general. So, uh, yeah, I think I think in general we are all agreed that any person who is making a positive claim, uh, they bear that burden of proof. Um, now, my, my second question, again, in general, um, I think we might have a bit more um, disagreement possibly on this. And this is my notion of, um, so when I, when we um, study something uh, like a proposition or, or a hypothesis or something, uh, and we have competing hypotheses, uh, as much as possible, we should, the deep, okay, put it this way, the default position is a blank state of agnosticism. That could be true, or this could be true. Um, there's, there, all claims are created equal. Um, this is the way I, I approach studying religions. I gave each, in Bayes terminology, that's what I call, there's a 50-50 chance. That's not Bayes. Uh, well, it, it is big. That's the prior probability. No, it's not. Okay, well... No, because you didn't establish the prior probability. So, now, that, okay, go that, can be, that can be a naive Bayes, but generally speaking, the way we use Bayes today uh, does not depend on naive probability. Right, so right. what I... What I'm... Tr oh, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. Oh, what I, the reason I'm doing this is... All the factors that go into the prior probability, I'm saying we should expose those as though their evidence is in their own right. Um, so, yeah, like for example, you know, if, if for example, if I'm studying the resurrection, something that would be factored into the prior probability would be, well, does God exist, um, or is the soup is the miraculous plausible or possible? 
um, and that sort of thing. These could be factors that are that I start in the default of agnosticism until the skeptic will provide me with, okay, well, no, su the supernatural is not possible because of X, Y, Z, and they have to persuade me that the supernatural is not possible, or they could persuade me there's no God that exists, so if there's no God, then no one can raise Jesus from the dead unless, you know, supernaturally or something like that. So I, I treat the factors in the prior probability as though they're evidences. Uh, they're, you know, it's, it's sort of the same thing that I'm doing, but it's just I want to expose that immediately by, by saying, uh, look, okay, I'm a blank slate. Um, maybe Jesus rose from the dead, maybe he didn't. Uh, and then if you say, no, he didn't, oh, I can say, well, why? Present your reasons. You can say, well, because I don't think God exists or because I don't think this. Um, you know what I mean? Like, that's my my tactic of why I'm doing right. that. But that's exactly why the prior probability is not 50-50. So agnosticism doesn't start at 50-50. Agnosticism starts with two statements that don't have any evidence. And the only way that you get to a non-zero probability for either, or let's, let's just presume that we are talking about a proposition that has a binary outcome as an answer. And so there are only two possibilities. The only way that you get to 50% for either one of them is to start analyzing the evidence. You don't presume that the evidence for both is 50%. Because it could very well turn out that even with only two possibilities, the evidence for one is 50%, and the evidence for the other is, uh, is 42%. And that there's an error of, of 8%. And so right away, you claim that you're starting with a, a naive Bayesian proposition of 50-50. But in this case, uh, let's just take the resurrection mm -hmm. uh, as a for instance. And let's say that up to the time of, of the supposed death of, of, of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, who, whoever he was, there had been um, uh, 4 billion people that had lived on the earth up to that time throughout all of history. And he's the only person that was ever resurrected. Well, right away, that makes our 50-50 proposition look pretty silly. So I don't agree that in this case, when we are actually trying to use Bayes to analyze the outcome of the proposition of any Christian claim, we start at 50-50. Okay. Um, should I, just Matt, uh, should I give it like a, a comeback on that or let you give your answer first? What do you guys want to do? No, you can, you can go ahead. I'm quite happy to sit back and listen to Andrew on that one. Okay, so so Andrew, here's why I, I think you're wrong. So okay. in, in terms of naive probability, so I, this is how I've, I've had con uh, David Johnson, my partner on Skeptics and Seekers, who people will know because they've heard the round tables. Um, we've discussed this, and the way I've described it, so let, let's picture there's a starting line, and these are what you would call zero percent you know there's there's a hypothesis that um jesus didn't rise on uh, jesus rose from the dead uh but then there's mr atheist who's also making a positive claim 
uh, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or something like that. Uh, so I, when I say 50-50, that's me saying they're both at the starting line. It's 0-0, it's zero, zero. like no one's presented any evidence to believe anything. I'm agnostic as to... So it is 0-0, zero, zero. yes. Yeah, but the reason I say 50-50 is in order for 0 to translate into the Bayesian formula, you have to put 50%. If you put 0%, it's going to give you... It's not going to give... It's going to say the resurrection is impossible right away. It's not reflecting... That's right. So that's why you have, because 50% makes no difference to the calculation. I could put well, 0. 0.6. Minute, zero, zero and 50 do make a difference, so that's what you just said. 50 doesn't make a difference, 0 does. Right. So you've got to, but to get to 50%, you've got to make, uh, you've got to make the evidence non-zero somehow. That this Jesus character did, you can't just assume that it's that it's non-zero. And Correct. if you're going to make some claim that it is non-zero, you're not making a simple uh, novel, um, uh, naive Bayesian claim of fifty-fifty. Okay, so I... because you're actually you're actually making a non-zero claim, and if you're going to make that claim, you do have you do have the responsibility of evidence. And the evidence may not be that it's 50% likely. As I said, if there were seven billion, uh, 4 billion people that lived before Jesus, it already makes the 50-50 claim look pretty silly. Right, so I agree, I agree with you, but when I'm saying 50% in Bayes, that equals the 0%. It, it's assuming I haven't proven anything, and that's the way the calculation well, works. it's if not I... because zero is assuming that you didn't prove anything. That's what, that's what we just said, because if you feed zero in, you get zero out. The moment you change zero, the equation does change. And the only way that you even get this started is to assume a non-zero stance. And that is what you have the responsibility to prove, that the resurrection has a non-zero probability. And once you start to demonstrate that, you've got to say it's actually 50% likely. Not in a Bayesian, not in Bayesian form, not in the Bayesian formula, because fifty-fifty represents the zero percent. If I put, let's pretend I have an evidence from the empty tomb, and I I say this proves the resurrection. We're sixty percent convinced this proves the resurrection. Let's just pretend that's the number. I've I've got the appearance to the twelve, and and we're like, yep, that's seventy percent. We have the so point six times point seven. Um, but then let's say the prior probability. If you don't put in if I put 0.5, which represents zero, like uh, I don't know either way. I, I, huh? 0.5 does not mean zero. So the way the way it, point, point 0.5 represents the starting line. If you put zero, if you put 0.6 times 0.7, and then zero percent as the prior probability. Or, or even as a, a negative evidence, that's you making a, a skeptical claim that the resurrection didn't happen. In fact, you're no, saying it's... What I'm, what I'm saying is, in order to make a non-zero claim, you have to have some evidence that makes it a non-zero claim. So here's what you've got to, to use Bayes, Dale. Mm -hmm. You have to have evidence to feed into that equation if you're going to use it in, in any 
tangible sense. So we use Bayesian statistics today in science. Now, the only way we get to a Bayesian claim about um, what the likelihood of some population of workers is to experience an illness, as a, as a for instance. So let's say you work in a, in a manufacturing uh, environment, right? And you're asking about um, uh, the potential for some sickness among that population versus other populations. You would have to make the claim that they would get sick from some illness a non-zero claim by feeding in facts that were non-zero. Right now, what I'm saying to you is, in order to get this Bayesian claim about the resurrection to be non-zero, you have to feed in some fact that can be analyzed that makes it non-zero. You have to have a piece of Correct. evidence here yeah, and, that makes it non-zero. Correct in the sense that you're using it, but not in a B. The zero is. No, no. Okay, so let let me explain this then. So pretend we have those two positive evidences: point six, point times point seven, right? Okay, what in, are they for the resurrection? Just so that we've got something for the listeners to hear. Yeah. So what? What, I, what is a positive evidence? Well, I don't want to discuss that, but let's say the empty tomb and pretend you're convinced it's it's you're sixty percent convinced the empty tomb proves the resurrection happened. Then we have a, a second piece of evidence uh, that the appearance from the twelve, and let's pretend you're seventy percent convinced that's true. Uh, the resurrection is true based on that fact, uh, that evidence. Okay. Point six times point seven is point four two. Okay. Then let's say we have a prior probability of. 32%. Do you think that the 32 is going to... So whatever the point six, whenever you plug that into base theorem, pretend the total probability without the prior is whatever, it's 75% or something like that. Do you think factoring in the 32% is going to make that probability go up or down? What base theorem does for is allow us to analyze the prior probability in light of new information. Mm. That is what phase is for. So if we have a prior probability um, of 0 0.42, mm -hmm. just as a, a for instance, and we come along with a new piece of evidence, what Bayes' theorem does for us is allow us to change the prior probability, to update the prior probability to... Um, to make a better uh, claim about whether we were right or wrong. Right. So Bayes is mathematics to update prior probability. That's the power of Bayes. Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But if we have the 42, or let's just make it 40 for the, the prior prob, sure. is that going to make the overall calculation go up with uh, from where it would be without it? Um, or, or, yeah. Or what our new information is. We, we've got to, uh, so we're trying to update that point four, right? That's what base is about. We've got a prior probability. And, and let me just, let me, let me just give you the whole ball of wax right here. Let's say, let's say that we could get to 50-50 for the resurrection. So I've, I've been, I've been pushing you pretty hard over, uh, naive phase versus an affirmative claim for your prior probability, right? So mm -hmm. I've, I've pushed you pretty hard there. Yeah. But for the sake of the conversation, let's just pretend 
that we start at 50-50. Let's just, let's just pretend that that's rational. Yeah. It's not, because you have to make an affirmative claim about some piece of evidence to make it non-zero. And that affirmative claim, in this case, should be non-naive in, in my view. But let's say I'm wrong. Okay. Yeah. Let's say that we just started 50-50 because we don't want to create a sophisticated prior probability uh, model where we have a range of probabilities, mm-hmm. right? And so we're not working out a range toward the end. So let's start at 50-50. For Bayes to mean anything, any evidence that you add should make a change to that 50%. That's what updating the prior probability is about, is making that 50-50 claim change. Right, exactly, correct. That That's what the evidences do, so I, I agree. Okay. But if, so, so we are in agreement, uh, even, even if we're not in agreement about uh, a naive starting point in this specific case. Yes. We I, are in agreement about what Bayes does. Yeah, because I'm arguing the, okay. def, the default is 50-50 in a Bayesian sense. Um, that's, that's the prior probability for these two competing things. So mm-hmm. when, you ha- when you plug in any probability that's lower than 50%, this n- will negatively impact. This is you making a positive claim that the hypothesis is false, and this will lower the overall probability that you have. So this is, this is why you have to do the 50-50. If, if you start with zero, it doesn't matter what positive evidence, it's going to work out to zero. You're, you're basically saying that it's impossible for this hypothesis to be true. We are um, in complete agreement there. We are in agreement about that math. Okay, so that so that means when you're when you're assigning a probability from forty nine to zero percent, this is the skeptic making a positive claim of their own in a Bayesian sense that the hypothesis is false, whereas the fifty fifty is the agnostic state. Maybe it's false, maybe it's true, and that's what you are calling it's zero percent or zero percent, and then the okay, well, go ahead. Here's, here's, here's why. I, I don't want to derail you, and I won't keep interrupting you, because uh, I hear people do that to you, and I think, it's speci- I think it is specifically obnoxious. So I'm sorry for interrupting you. Oh, no problem. Thank, yeah, thank, thanks for your take. I want to hear it. Well, so when I make, when, when I perform an analysis of a probability, the analysis of that probability isn't my claim about truth or falsehood. And if my emotional state figures into that calculation, so that I'm saying 49% means it's false and 51% means it's true, then right away we're not using Bayes anymore. Okay. Because yeah. Yeah. because it's possible. For instance, we see this in voting. So let me use a let me use a specific analogy for the listeners. In a in a voting world where we have multiple so it's not very true in the United States, but it, I think it's more true in Canada that you have more than one political party, right? You, you yeah. might see three or four possibilities. Yeah. Well, a, a 35% might be enough to get someone elected, right? Because that's a plurality, even if it's not a majority. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And so as a skeptic, I might be willing to accept that 35% was the best I can do because everything else was 5 or 6% or 3 or 4%. You know, mm-hmm. In other words, they're so far below the, the, the margin of, of error, the, the standard deviation, 
that the other things really aren't worth me considering. Yeah. So I really just wanted to give you my take on the math there because I'm I'm not saying that when we get to forty nine percent that means we don't believe a thing. For instance, um, I might uh, I might think that I can walk into uh, a restaurant that has a very poor uh, a very poor sanitation rating, right? Yeah. And it wouldn't necessarily be that the that the seventy one on the wall that the health department gave them meant that. Uh, uh, what, 29 people out of 100 got sick. It might just be that 49% was instructional to me about what risk I was willing to take, or 71% is instructional about how strong a stance I am willing to make on the back of the evidence. Absolutely. So it, it's helped so much. And actually, yeah, so I, I want to offer for your audience, Andrew is absolutely right. Um, and, and here's something that I, I was doing wrong because my approach, I, I, it's a misnomer for me to say I'm using Bayes' theorem because I'm not. And this is why I, I qualify and say I'm, I'm Bayes-ish or Andrew gave me some good advice. I, I use a cumulative probability formula that's along the line. Right, by the way. I have seen what you do and the math is good there. Perfect, yeah. So, so it's a it's a semantical difference and it's my fault I, I shouldn't say I'm using Bayes theorem um, because that employs conditional probabilities I don't I use this naive probabilities and I plug it into the formula to get the cumulative case of that so um, should I should I give the actual formula or is that too much for the audience or I don't think so we we've got good listeners um, but I am gonna say this I am sick of hearing my own voice. I, I'm <laughs> so not. I, I, I love being quiet. I okay. really am because I'm sick of hearing my own voice. I was very happy for you to carry that load, Andrew. So if the subject wants to move on, um, yep. I'm quite happy for you to let that go and sink a beer or whatever it is that you do when I'm talking. But did you want to talk briefly about the formula, Dale, before we move on? Um, sure. I, I think just in case for the eye, because it'll highlight what the difference is between Andrew and why, you know, why do I keep saying I'm, I'm not using Bayes properly? So basically Bayes theorem, the, the version that I use is, okay, what's the probability of the hypothesis being true, you know, that, that the resurrection is true or whatever, God exists, whatever the hypothesis is, uh, given on condition of the evidence, the cumulative evidences, uh, and the background knowledge, or the, that's the prior probability part. So the real formula is, okay, that equals, as the numerator, it's the evidence given that the hypothesis is true, or on the condition that the hypothesis is true, uh, and that can be multiple factors, right? Because remember I said the 0.6 times 0.7, it, it just depends how many pieces of evidences you, you're considering. Uh, and then times the prior probability, and then that's divided by the numerator plus one minus uh, the numerator and that sort of thing. And that's, so in, what I'm doing that's not Bayes is that I'm not giving a conditional probability of the evidence given the truth of the hypothesis. I'm just giving a direct or naive probability. What, what do I think this evidence, the probability that Christianity is true on this evidence is um, 60%. Like I'm just directly saying this evidence proves the resurrection happened or something it, it's a direct uh thing so that that's where 
I, I can't claim that I'm actually using a Bayesian approach. So hopefully that, that makes some sense for, for the audience. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. So moving into my first case study then, and I know this will be a topic that um, both Matt and Andrew will be capable of discussing because they, they did a show on the Kalam Cosmological Argument um, with David Pegg, I think it was. Yes, yeah, it was right. David. See, Good I, chat, David. I really like talking to him. Yeah, he's... Yeah, he was a good guy. I, I enjoyed that show. I was listening to it before I came on. But um, so, yeah, I, I think we would all agree. Uh, look, in, in the, with the Kalam cosmological argument, it is the theist who's making a claim. They bear the burden of proof, uh, in this case, to prove that the premises are true. So, so if we look at the second premise uh, that the universe began to exist, uh, it's, it's me that has to prove that that's actually the case. Um, but, uh, let's, what, what is the atheist's role then? If the atheist is trying to show, well, maybe the, you know, if they, if they posit defeaters through various eternal cosmological models, uh, does the atheist have to prove that, uh, one or more of those models, uh, are true, uh, in order to defeat my claim or, you know, like, do what is the atheist burden of proof when they're they're posing these cosmological models? Uh, for for Matt first, since he didn't get to. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, yeah, I think it's a bit of a challenge when using an argument. Actually, when um, we're talking about burden of proof, because the cosmological argument is a, is a sequence of steps, and it uh, mm -hmm. it results in arguments and I have a phrase which I use quite a lot and that's arguments not evidence and so the in order to support the steps within the cosmological argument there needs to be evidence to support them so let's just pick the first one that um, uh, that, that is used in the car which is uh, if I remember correctly things that begin to exist need a cause is that am I, am I right there yes um, so there's the, the evidential issue uh, that the theist has there is A, they need to show a cause and B, they need to demonstrate something beginning to exist with a cause and if, if I'm going to deny uh, the, the conclusions from that the only thing I need to do is point out that actually there's been no observation of anything that began to exist. All we've been able to observe within this universe is, is atoms being rearranged to form something else. Nothing has actually begun to exist. So I don't think I need to actually give any evidence when I want to counter it. I just need to say, well, you haven't provided your supporting evidence. Hmm. Okay. And I think that's all that I need to do. Okay, so that that's perfect. That that answers my question, not in the way I was expecting, but it, it's it's it does answer it. it. It would be the same for the second premise. Then I would need to prove that these eternal cosmological models uh, fail as defeaters; that they're improbable um, in order to, sh you know, and as part of the case to show that um, the universe did begin to exist. So if if I present evidence such as um, 
you know, the um, CMB or, or the redshift and that sort of thing. And see, this, this proves on a balance of probabilities positively that the universe began to exist. And if you suggest these eternal cosmological models um, to, as equal possibilities, um, then that that is all, or as Andrew will call it, leveling the playing field. That's all you need to do. You don't need to actually prove that one of, one of those models is actually true. Um, so yeah, yes, I, I could, yes, I think I could say that because yeah, if we pick the second one, saying the universe began to exist, there are there are arguments we could use to support that. You know, one being that we can uh, measure the we've got the expansion of the universe. Therefore, if you roll that backwards, the universe must have ended up must have started at a singularity. So there can't have been any universe in that singularity. So uh, so therefore, the universe had had to begin to exist. But then we could counter that with well, actually, energy and, and mass are the are are essentially the same thing in, in different states. And what we could have had is in singularity, you've got infinite energy. And that energy spontaneously translated into matter. So you actually haven't got a beginning of a universe. You've just got spontaneous um, uh, translation of energy into matter. So the current state of the universe may have begun to exist, but the universe itself, imagining the universe, didn't begin to exist. If you see what I'm saying. So you could have two counters there, and so. Yeah, it's the same as my answer to the first one. So all I need to do is to show that the the positive claim isn't satisfactorily uh, proven. Perfect. Yeah, and, and therefore I can reject it. Perfect. Yeah, and I agree 100% with you as well. But uh, let's let's see if Andrew's got a unique take or if he he agrees. What what do you think, Andrew? So. I like everything that Matthew said there. I will try to spice this up a little bit because I know what you're after here, and I actually agree with, with the heart of the question about permanent proof. Okay. So if you used the column and you said uh, everything that everything that begins to exist must have a cause, and you said eventually in the course of the conversation that it was more likely that God was that cause. And I said, no, it's not. And I and, and almost always here, we use the word the cause, right? So I, I could I absolutely agree with Matthew that I can that I can just say you've got to prove every premise of an argument. Because that's just first semester logic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. If we if we make if we if we're forming a syllogism and everybody I think all of our listeners will know that that's a very simple you know very often syllogisms are three parts a major premise a minor premise and a required conclusion so if we're making a deductive argument I can just say you haven't proved one of the premises and that's what the column is mm -hmm. but very often we move from that in the very moment that we say most likely what people don't spot is we're leaving the deductive argument and moving to the inductive argument because a deductive argument requires a conclusion right the conclusion is required from the premises yep. but when we but that's not usually how we have these conversations and in fact it's not even how you and i were having the conversation about Bayes. Mm -hmm. Bayes is actually by the way i'm not trying to get back into Bayes. i'm just saying that Bayes is what helps us make better inductive arguments right that we're, we're yep. Beating a bunch of probabilities, and so I'm saying, and so if I 
countered and said, look, I agree with the cosmological argument, but I disagree with God because, now I'm about to make an inductive argument, so everybody watch, because the, the quantum fungal demonstrates, now I said this today, uh, Dave and I went back and forth a little bit about it, I don't even remember the, the outcome because that was a few shows ago, hmm. but I could make the claim that I agree with the first premise of the Kalam because we have quantum particles. We have virtual particles that pop in and out of existence, and that seems to me to be more consistent with the nature of reality that I understand, is that we have quantum particles that appear and disappear right now, and that seems more likely to be in tune with the beginning of the universe. Now, you might disagree with me, but I am making an affirmative claim, and we're starting from the same place. Then I would absolutely be accepting the burden of proof. Gotcha. Perfect. And that, that leads perfectly into my, my, my second case study. So I actually appreciated that, that take there. And this is, this is, uh, I want to get into, okay, does the, does the burden of proof ever shift, um, to the atheist? So, so I've used the example of the moral argument and, and, uh, Euthyphro, the Euthyphro dilemma. Um, so I, I think we would all agree in terms of the moral argument, the original claimant is the Christian, if I'm it, or the theist. If I'm advancing this as a to claim that God exists, I bear the original burden of proof. That, that's uncontroversial, correct? Oh, oh no. Oh, oh. Do you guys agree with that? I like if it's the same with the Kalam cosmological argument. I'm advancing an argument that God exists, and I'm I'm giving the moral argument. So I would the Christian would bear the burden of proof, right? Yes, yeah, sorry, I, I, lost I... You, yeah, I lost you a little bit in, uh, in something funny there, Dale. Oh, sorry, did I robotize again? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so, so sorry, so, so that's good. That's simple. That's what we established in the last one. But sometimes atheists will present the Euthyphro dilemma as an objection to this, uh, to the moral argument. Now, I claim with the Euthyphro dilemma, the burden of proof actually shifts to the atheist because they're actually presenting this uh, as a defeater, but it's a positive claim. They're saying, look, there are only these two options, and neither of these options are acceptable for the, uh, for the theist, um, because they, they don't allow for necessary moral truths or something like that, uh, that are grounded in God. Um, so it, the Euthyphro Dilemma is actually a claim in and of itself and at that point, my take is that, okay, the burden then shifts to the atheist to establish that. Um, and if I, I, you know, if I can defeat that, that's fine. Um, but I, I, obviously, I will still hold my burden with the moral argument kind of thing. But I'm just saying now we have two actual claims, one from the atheist that they bear the burden of proof on and one from the theist, the original one, to prove the moral argument. What, what do you guys make of that? Oh, I guess I cut out again. Okay. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're, still, you're still there. I think we were both thinking and, and trying to see which one would give up first. <laughs> <laughs> I, I give up thinking it's been horrible. <laughs> uh, my, uh, uh, sorry, I don't know. Is this is it too much, you think, for everyone? Or? No. Okay. No, no, no. No, no, no we, we were 
just jesting. We do a lot of jesting and laughing, Dale. Don't, oh, dude, don't okay. worry about it. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully not at my expense, but... <laughs> no, 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 no. It's uh, not with, with the last episode that we recorded a week ago. We managed to get Andrew to admit that Windows operating systems are better. But that's not oh. a conversation we'll, we'll have now. I, I, do not, I do not believe that that will be bared out in the history of that recording. <laughs> Although Matthew is editing it, I now consider that unfair. <laughs> But just before I get there, because I, I was going to bring up that that uh, that is the correct def that's the defeater of this defeater. But just first and foremost, do you, you do agree that the atheist in making this claim that there are only these two options, they do bear the burden of proof? Is, is that correct? Mm, that's an interesting question. They bear the they bear the burden of proof. To show that those are the only two reasonable options. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. Yes, I'll, I'll go with that. Okay. And so we're we're not actually in in a in a first semester logic sense we're not actually making a claim about the objects of the argument but about the form of the argument. If you so so, mm -hmm. so we can ask this question of it doesn't have to be about good right it can be about uh, platonic forms of beauty right yep. is yep. it. Is it Okay, so we're not making a claim about the, the objects of the argument, but about the form of the argument. Yeah, and, uh, uh, just to back up what you're saying, some some people call it call this the axiological argument. So that that means values, the study of values. So that could be objective values of beauty or morals. So so yeah, it could be the same form. In that, right. yeah. And we're depending on a law of reason here, uh, which is the excluded middle, to, to create the dilemma. Mm. Right, mm. but sometimes arguments don't. Sometimes arguments aren't as simple as a, a proposition that is true or false. Here's what I would say. I, I don't think I, I don't think you're gonna like this, um, and I might be wrong here because I haven't thought this all the way through. Okay. And we have the benefit of talking behind the scenes, you and I, right? So we get to yeah. pick each other's brains about this. So 
this is sort of fresh for the conversation. So feel free to, to say, we ought to talk about it later. I'm not prepared to do it, right? But it seems to me that the argument is at least well stated that it is reasonable to depend on the excluded middle and for these to be the only two options. Now, it might not be. It might be that the Christian can collapse the two prongs of the dilemma and say that this is not this is not actually the dilemma that it appears to be. There's a distinction here without a difference because God is good. Now, it seems to me then the affirmative claim is that God solves the dilemma. That seems to me to be the affirmative claim. Okay, so so I would so I get what you're saying. That's perfect. So uh, I would disagree though that the third option is a claim. It that's just a, de, a mere defeat. It, it could be a claim. I, I could offer it as an actual claim, and then I would bear the burden of proof. Um, but I don't have to in order to defeat the Euthyphro dilemma. I can just suggest it as it's merely po it's equally possible. Maybe so. Like here here's the way the Euthyphro dilemma is. So. The one horn, the reason it's unacceptable for theists is because it's, okay, it's good because God did it. The problem here is that it makes morality or, or the standard of values, whatever, arbitrary. And that is, oh, I, I, don't, I don't like that. This is most important to me. This is why it's an unacceptable option for Christians. You know, God could very well have said, go ahead and rape and torture innocent babies. It's all good. I, I told you to do it, so therefore it's good, right? So there's that arbitrariness. That's why we don't like the first horn. The second horn allows for necessary moral truths or values or, or whatever, um, but they're not grounded in God. It's it's an atheistic moral Platonism type thing that, or, you know, axiological Platonism or something. And again, that's unacceptable to the Christian because no, God's a satiety. Everything has to go back. Everything has to be grounded in God. Um, so in that light, there is a third option, the one that Andrew brought up. Well, it goes back to God, but the, the values are necessary because they're grounded in God's essential nature, his essential goodness. It, it, he's by logical necessity. He is the good. He is beautiful or or the standard of beauty beauty and that sort of thing um so that's why there's a third option and i don't have to claim that as yeah that's actually true i can just say well maybe there's this third option where god's essential nature is necessarily this standard and that avoids the problem of making morality arbitrary um because god just did that and it also avoids um having necessary moral truths that aren't grounded in God or connected to God in some way. Um, so if I just propose that as a mere defeater, maybe this is the case. There's a third horn to grapple with. If you're going to stick... I don't, yeah, so um, I don't agree that that's the third horn. I think that's still restating that what God says is good. You're, you're just using words in a slightly different order, but the bottom line is still... Whatever God commands or does or says is good. So I don't think it gets you off that horn. In a way, but the the trick is that what God does or says is necessarily good. It, it is necessarily what it is. He couldn't do other. He can't lie. With the Euthyphro dilemma, the gods uh, that the Euthyphro yeah, that, dilemma... That doesn't, 
that doesn't help me, I'm afraid, Dale. Okay, but it, it helps Theus, and it defeats the Euthyphro dilemma. You may not like the third alternative for whatever reason, I do. Uh, but in order to defeat the dilemma, there is, uh, you know, maybe you could make up Matt's trilemma then. I don't know, if you don't like grounding it in God's... Well, it's not that I don't like it, I don't agree that it's the third one. I think it's, still, it's just restating one of the pre-existing ones. No, but the pre-existing one is arbitrary. God could lie, right, under under the first horn. If 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 it's just whatever no, God... because the first horn is God does whatever God says is good. So he can't, because if he was to lie, the, the, the first horn says whatever God says or does is good. So if he lies, then it's good. So he can't. So I, I get what you're saying, but that's not true to the historical context of what Plato... This argument was made against the Greek gods, and he was imagining with his youthful dilemma that a god, whatever a god does, he can choose to lie or rape a woman or whatever. That's just good. This is the what he had in mind. So this is the traditional statement of the youthful dilemma. If you want to incorporate a modern take and include what God's necessarily good, and therefore since God did it, it's necessarily good... And that's that's cool. I, I don't care, but you're not you're not stating the Euthyphro dilemma as it's been traditionally understood, which which is fine. You can make Matt's dilemma then. That, that's good. Let me ask let me ask the question that I think Matt's getting to. And Matt, correct me if I'm in, if I'm entirely wrong here, but it seems to me that what Matt is saying is um, what you're what you're doing is restating the portion of the dilemma that says what is what is done that is good is good because God said it. How is what you are saying different from that horn of the dilemma? That is what I'm saying, yeah. So it's because uh, what God does is necessarily determined by his essential nature, which is which defines the good, so to speak. So, so you're still saying that whatever God does is good? Yes, in that, but it's, it's just, I would not say it's arbitrary. So, so yes, whatever God does or says is the good. That's that's correct. Well, would you agree? Would you agree right there that you've just made an affirmative claim that it's not arbitrary? I would not say that if I'm proposing it as a mere uh, defeater. The way I just said it could be construed as a claim. So I don't. That's fair. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's fair. You you can make a claim. You know you. Yeah, I can choose to make a claim or not. Uh, but it's not necessary. For for me to defeat the Euthyphro dilemma. Um, okay, so let me ask you about defeaters, because that's going to be really important. Yeah. It, it, so you and I have talked a little bit about this, and for the listener, you you have potentially, I don't know if all the details are worked out, I'm not trying to spill something that you don't want spilled, so I'll just say that you've got an upcoming spot on a big talk show. Oh, yeah, you, and you can you can reveal it. Uh, people know. Okay, I, so that is okay. okay. Yep, absolutely. Have you had it already, or is it just I, waiting to be broadcast, or what? I haven't had it yet. It's, uh, I guess I'll reveal the date. Um, I, I was just not revealing it because uh, I didn't want people to get their hopes up and then have it canceled, but we're scheduled for this Tuesday night, uh, so the 12th, uh, from 6 to 9. So hopefully it goes through, and yeah, hopefully I do okay. the Smalley Show. That's Smalley's podcast, and, uh, yeah. and folks, you should listen. Dale and I have talked about this uh, off mic, so 
it, it seems to me that we talked about the beers privately on, on the run-up to this show and on and on some preparation for you on the Smalley show. Mm-hmm. And after I thought about it a little bit, it seems to me that if you're claiming something as a defeater, even even if we even if we get rid of leveling the playing field versus defeating an argument, so we don't need to go into what that is unless unless we get back to it mm-hmm. for purposes of the show. Yeah, well, it's but it's coming up in my next my next uh, case study, so yeah, it will oh, it, it, it will. Be. <laughs> it, it seems to me that if you're claiming something as a defeater, mm-hmm. and and you can just say, but this assertion seems to be a defeater, then I can ignore it. Um, to the extent that it doesn't have evidence. So you can say it's a defeater, mm-hmm. and I can equally well, without any evidence, if you don't provide any evidence, mm-hmm. I can equally cavalierly say that it's not a defeater. Okay. And and Matt, uh, you have the same... Well, that is what I'm doing with um, with your Youth Pro defeater. You're telling me that you've defeated Youth Pro, and I'm sitting here refusing to accept that it's a, a defeater. So, you know, we, there's... There's clearly a, a problem there, in case, you know, where do we go next from that? Because something needs to be yeah. to be done to break that, that stalemate. Because you're telling me you've defeated it, and I'm saying, but you haven't. So, yeah, yeah. we need to do something. So if you're talking about um, uh, burden of proof on, on who's making a claim, something needs to be done to disentangle the those opposing statements so so put it this way what what you've done at best if if i i, I don't accept what you're saying but I, I don't care like you've come up with your own version of the euthyphro dilemma that that's your defeater for my defeater for your original euthyphro dilemma defeater um so you've you've re <laughs> you've redefined this has never been this exciting i tell you <laughs> i hope you <laughs> um yeah. Um, so, anyways, I, I'm good. If you want to re- collapse it to that, then I, I don't care. Then it's not a problem for me. I accept the first horn. It's good because God necessarily did it um, out of you know essentially out of His own essential nature. I'm fine taking one of the horns. There's no dilemma for me. I, I'm comfortable, you know, choosing one. So, so yeah. If you redefine it, there's no problem in my opinion. Um, yeah, that's my my take on that. But I know what the the audience, what we sort of hinted at with these defeaters. Um, my Molinistic defeater, uh, everyone's favorite. I, everyone on SNS, I know, you know, all you skeptics look forward to hearing my my take on this and stuff. But um, yeah, ba- basically, so the original claimant here, when I use my Molinistic defeater, I am typically not making a claim. I'm just proposing it as a mere equal possibility in response to the claims, the original claims of skeptics. So in the first place, let, let's say if you are a skeptic and you claim Christianity is false because God killed a bunch of innocent babies in the flood, that was immoral, uh, or hell, I don't like hell or something. It, it, the Bible teaches a torture chamber model and that's immoral and stuff like that. Can we all agree that the skeptic is, is the one making the claim and bears the burden of proof at least in terms of that original claim. If they're using that argument to, as as as, sorry, an argument isn't evidence. Um, if they're using that argument to 
justify their claim that there is no God, then yes, they, they have a have a burden of proof. But this, this, this bumps into a problem that I have when using arguments and the phrase burden of proof, because an argument is not evidence, and if it's not evidence, it can't be proof of anything. So that's the sequence of steps I go through there. So I always find that burden of proof when being applied to philosophical arguments is a pragmatic scenario for me anyway. You know, proof is something that is done through evidence, and evidence requires a scientific method, something you can repeat, and it's tangible. No. And I, I, I don't find arguments in any circumstance are good enough to satisfy that. But anyway, that's, that's my own beef side side. So, okay. um, where so was I, I? So I would um, just... But yeah, Okay. Yes, there is a burden of proof. If I'm saying, yeah, God drowned everybody in, in the flood, um, and therefore that is not the action of a God, therefore God can't exist, then yes, that is a burden that I, I hold. Um, but my burden is satisfied by the statement that I've made. Okay, okay. Um, sh should I respond to... Yeah, feel, yeah respond if you wish. It's, it's kind of beside the point. Okay, but yeah, so I, I disagree. Argumentation... Look, with logical deduction, we have a series of premises. Those premises can be evidenced. You know, that's where they get their warrant from. And it can come from different things. But yes, they, they can be evidence. They have evidence which, which springs the argument, but the argument itself isn't evidence. Okay, I'm good with that. that that's fine. That's, it doesn't matter to me about that. But, yeah, logic undermine. You don't need scientific evidence. It can be different types of evidence, right? Scientism is false, um, and logic. I didn't say scientific evidence. I said scientific method of producing and repeating the evidence. I, I didn't say the evidence was scientific. Okay, so even still, the scientific method that's wrong. We have other logic is what underpins everything. So one of the things in the scientific method is the uh, principle of falsification, right? I, you would take that as evidence because it's following the scientific method, but actually that's well, that's logic. Right, so the principle of falsification means that some piece of evidence disconfirms some other observation. Yeah, it, it's a form of reasoning called denying the consequent. Um, so well, well, uh, P implies okay. Q, Q does not, is falsified, therefore P is not true. Right, but let's, let's be very clear about okay. first semester logic here. Okay. Because we're, we're about to start down a path that is um, that is going to mislead the listener, and I can't quite let that go by. Okay. In any first semester logic class where you learn about syllogisms uh, or, or just about premises and about creating a claim that becomes a premise for, you know, for an argument. We have, and, and again, here we are talking primarily about deductive argumentation. Yeah. So in a deductive argument, we have a set of premises, and when those premises are proven, the conclusion of those premises is required because of the nature of the argument. Now, that said, any deductive argument requires things. That mm -hmm. the argument be airtight, right? That, that it be sound. The other that it requires is that it be verifiable. And right now, when you make the claim that an argument itself is evidence, that is not the case. 
an argument can be sound and not demonstrate a single thing and therefore have no evidence or have no uh, have no uh, valid value. So I can say uh, all weevils are wobbles and John is a wobble, therefore John is a weevil. And that argument means absolutely nothing from an evidential perspective. Because yes. Because we don't know yes. weevils and wobbles are. Yeah, so I, I think what you're saying, like I... I think what you're getting at is, look, so arguments, there are two fundamental things. So first of all, arguments have to be logically valid in the sense that the conclusion follows the rules of inference. It, it inevitably, um, sorry, it inevitably follows from the premises. It commits no formal or informal uh, fallacies. And then the evidence part I think you're getting to is this premises have to be logically sound. They're more probably true than not, however you, you evidence that. But it, it doesn't have to be through following the scientific method. I could use the historical method to warrant a premise, for example, or, you know, whatever. Well, okay, but you, so I agree that historical methods, we talk about them differently. Yeah. I don't think that we're saying if we offer some historical method that we're making a claim that is outside the scientific method of investigation. Oh, okay. It all, it derives from the laws of physics. I, I didn't understand the well, last thing. Well, no, 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 that's, that's fair. So let, let's see if we can agree, because that's part of what this is about, right? Can, can we agree on what the burden of proof is? Yeah, and, that's and so burden of proof sort of implies some kind of analysis of, of, of something. Is it, so is it evidence? So let's see. If I make the historical claim... Um, that Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Um, wait a minute. We need to start with a different example because I have absolutely no idea what the historical evidence for Caesar crossing the Rubicon is. <laughs> All right. Can we, can we please start somewhere else? He had a camp in place A and he was looking to fight a battle in place B and the Rubicon crossed between those two locations. So I, I, I it's don't know highly likely that he had to cross the Rubicon to right. get from A to B. Um, okay. Can we, but let, yeah. can we talk about the American War of Independence? I'm, I'm familiar with that, and I'm a stupid American, so it's probably the only history that I know, right? Okay. So if, if I wanted to talk about the American War of Independence, uh, so from 1776 and earlier, and Dale will know a little bit about that because he's from Canada, <laughs> and we're so arrogant that everybody has to know our history, and Dale, I'm sorry about that. Um, but... We, okay. can, we can talk about uh, George Washington and uh, being a general and leading forces, right? And, and we would examine documents from the time, because none of us know George Washington, right? Though we might have some descendants of Washington who would have some family history, we would have documents that we might carbon date. They would look similar to other documents that we think are are from the time. It would use uh, language that, that seemed like language that they used 300, uh, 200 years ago, whatever it is, uh, uh, 250 years ago almost now. Um, so all of the all of the methods of history at some level involve. The uh, part of the scientific method, which is observation and and uh, and experimentation, mm -hmm. like comparison of documents, 
right? And so the historical method, while we don't call it the scientific method, gains its power from the ideas of comparison and, and observation and uh, analysis of language or whatever we do, right? Sure. But we're not just making a claim without evidence. Sure, it, it incorporates parts, like obviously you observe uh, certain things or whatever. So, so yeah, it, it does incorporate parts of the scientific method and that sort of thing. So that that's fine. Um, yeah, I'm happy to leave it there because I, I think we're sort of getting sidetracked back back to like what the the actual point was. Um, and this is my fault because I went down the side side road. But um, okay, so so we all agree that the skeptic bears the burden of proof the, on the original claim that Christianity's false because the flood because Abraham was willing to sacrifice God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son whatever whatever it is whatever the claim is uh, that shows Christianity's faults now my one of my main responses to a lot of these types of, of claims is not to make it is to propose a defeater not as a claim um, because I, I can't prove this is true but just as a mere leveling of the playing field that um, given Molinism, given that God exists and, you know, he has middle knowledge, he, he knows, given that human beings have free will and, um, and, all, and all of these, these things, there could be a moral justification for explaining why these events took place, even though they, at face value, seem to speak against our moral conscience. And these moral justifications, I think, provide an equally possible explanation so if you have two hypotheses god is immoral we have the same evidence you know killing people in the flood you can have the hypothesis god is immoral or you can have my molinistic defeater hypothesis and if you are the one making the claim no i know that it's the immoral hypothesis that's true then you have to show my molinistic defeater which which can explain all of the same data that you guys are using to make your claim um, you have to show that's improbable in some way. You could you could do that by showing, well, it's improbable that God exists, or it's improbable that human beings have free will, or something like that. Any one of those things would knock out and show that my Molinistic defeater is not equally possible. Um, but that is on the skeptic to have to show that this equal possibility or this hypo this explanatorily equivalent hypothesis is improbable. It's, I don't have to prove it's true in order to defeat um, your argument. And I'm, I'm going to get a bit technical here. So what I'm doing with my Molinistic Defeater, I've, I've never said this to anyone on Skeptics and Seekers or that sort of thing, but you have to understand there's a difference between a de facto objection and a de jure objection, right? De facto is where I'd be saying Molinism is true and that proves that, you know, you skeptics are out to lunch on, on this or whatever. I'm, I'm stating facts. Uh, kind of thing to destroy your argument, whereas a de jure is I'm, a, I'm objecting or attacking your justification, uh, or your epistemic justification for making that claim, and that's what I'm really trying to get at, and, and we have to realize there are different types of defeaters, they're not all the same, there are undercutting defeaters, re rebutting defeaters, and that sort of thing, and I, I kind of forget the different. I should have done a little bit of research to remember. It's been a while since I, I studied this, but I think what I'm going for, it's a de jure objection based on a undercutting defeater, I guess, 
um, is what I would say. Like I'm I'm undercutting your justification. Uh, Doesn't that depend on the the notion that there can be such a thing as mental knowledge? Yes. Um, but that's an equal possibility unless and until the original claimant, um, if I'm just saying, well, maybe God has middle knowledge and you're saying, no, 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 God's immoral. There is no middle knowledge. Then you have to show me that there is no middle knowledge, uh, before. Yeah, no, that's not how I would go about. Okay. I wouldn't attack Molinism that way. Okay. By the way, would you do the audience the favor? Because this is very technical. Molinism and middle knowledge is not something that most people, whether they're Christians or not, will have studied in Sunday school or heard about from the pulpit, at least in my part of the world. I, I don't know about where you are in Canada. It's but not common yet. Okay, good. Would you tell the listeners uh, in summary what we're talking about here so that they can follow the conversation? Sure. So so um, Louis Molina was um, around this. Uh, 16th century and he was sort of coming up with he was a Catholic and he was sort of responding to the notion of, of Calvinists and that sort of thing but he came up with um, so look, God has what's called middle knowledge uh, so that contrasts with his natural and free knowledge um, and middle knowledge essentially is that God knows what every free creature so it assumes that we have libertarian free will um, he knows what each one of those people would do in every given set of circumstances, what, you know, what I would choose to do in every given set of circumstances. So, um, if you picture God, it's wrong to say this, but before creation or something, without creation, let's say it that way, um, he's got a set of various logically possible worlds, uh, that he can choose to create. He knows that in world number one, um, Dale flies off the handle and, and you know, chooses to uh, hang up on, on Matt and Andrew for whatever reason. Um, during a eminently sensible thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Especially God... when you're talking about operating systems. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, well, so... Only if it's a window. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, perfect. And, and he knows That's that... That's a previous show, Dale. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's still been uploaded yet. When other people, when the listeners are listening to this, they'll be laughing. Yeah. Awesome. So, so yeah. Um, and same, same deal. They, they'll know that. Um, yeah. In in this logically possible world, the world that God actually chooses to, the world that God actualizes or actually creates, uh, he knows that Dale's so stupid he sticks around with uh, with Andrew and and Matt to finish the conversation. Um, so, so that's what middle knowledge is. He knows what our free will choices will be in every possible, logically possible set of circumstances. So it kind of marries, um, it, it allows for a strong view of God's sovereignty, like Calvinists want to maintain, right? Because he, he is providentially leading every, he chose which world to create uh, in the first place and, and what set of circumstances would obtain. Uh, but at the same time, it, it allows God to be off the hook because we are unmoved movers. We have libertarian free will. If I choose to eat the fruit and disobey God, God didn't determine me. There are no set of necessary or sufficient conditions prior to my making that choice that determine my choice. I'm making that free choice. I have dual ability. 
Uh, so that so that's really what middle knowledge is. It, 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 the Molinistic account incorporates, allows for people to have libertarian free will, um, and for God to maintain sovereignty over, you know, over his prop, his providence, his divine providence, and stuff like that. And that that would include things. So Matt, do you have thoughts? Oh, I'm sorry, Neil. I thought you were. No, that's cool. I think I think I'm done. Yeah, Matt, what do you think, Matt? And, and bring it back to, if I'm the burden of proof, remember that's the main point, is, is I'm not claiming I know that Molinism is true, I'm just proposing it as a, maybe this could explain it, it's that, it's a third, it's another alternative that's equally possible. Yeah, I, I don't like it uh, as a response, and um, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit uh, unkind to the argument. Uh, so uh, I apologise, Dale, but you know, no we've, we, we've spoken on podcasts before and I, I hope we can call each other friends. And I'm not being unkind to you, yep. um, otherwise you wouldn't be on the show. So, um, <laughs> but I, I don't like the argument and I consider the, the argument uh, lazy and disingenuous. And the reason why is because it, it basically puts up a coverall brick wall designed to, to stop everything. and. I'll, I'll go to the uh, to the specific example we we're talking about to try to illustrate my my point. So the the argument that um, the hypothetical argument that we're going on about, which is an argument we do sometimes see, the the God of the Bible can't exist because an all loving God would not drown the whole of the world like he did in, in the global flood. Therefore, that is inconsistent with the message of Christianity. Therefore, that God can't exist. So that's essentially the, the argument. So the defense to that argument is, well, actually, God knows everything and God is essentially good. So whatever he does can only be good because he is the good. I, I, I'm not satisfied by that as a, as a defense against that because that, that argument is intended to be a blanket, all-encompassing defense against everything argument. And there's, there's, there isn't, and the whole point of that argument is there is no way around it. it. It doesn't have any evidence to support it. It's just a statement uh, that's supposed to be accepted as fact. And it's essentially like a superhero force field to, that, that stops everything coming. So I, I'm, I, I just don't like it. Uh, and I, I, I don't okay. consider it a a useful or, or a helpful thing to throw in when, when having this kind of conversation because, like I say, it's, it's designed to be a stop-all. I call it the William Lane Craig defence and that mm. absolutely is not intended to be a compliment. Okay. However, the way I would counter that is I would say equally possible is that God is just a terrible, horrible individual. You may absolutely. as well call him the devil because everything he does is intended to cause pain and havoc. Absolutely. The, 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 the flood caused pain and havoc, therefore that's the God that exists. And that would be how I would counter that defeater against that specific example. A different example might have a slightly different response, but that's how I would respond to it in those circumstances. Okay, so perfect. So I like one thing that you said, that you do see them as equally possible, but you just don't like them. Uh, you don't like that option, and you are absolutely right. Yeah, I, I'm offering a de jure objection uh, as a defeater. I'm not. You're breaking up now. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Let me know when it's back. Yeah, 
Can you hear me now? Oh, hello? Yeah, you're still robotic. All yeah, right. it's better. It's better? Okay. Uh, so I... I I like that you you see them as equally possible. Uh, I don't know if that that is truly how you feel, but you don't like that one alternative. So so in the first place, I would just say I, I don't care. Not to be rude, or like I don't care whether you like it or not. We we care about what's true or not, right? So in the context of you claiming the immoral god hypothesis is more probable than not. Um, you, I'm offering a de jure objection with my Molinistic Defeater. And whether you like it or not, you do see it as equally possible. Now, I get that it, why you don't like it, I guess, because you see it as some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card and it's all-encompassing and that sort of thing. So That's it does exactly have... exactly how I see it, yes. So that, again, though, the wide... First of all, it's not all-encompassing. It, it doesn't cover everything. There, there are limits... To its application but it is true it has a wide application there's a reason i use it for a dang many lot of things you know revelation or uh immoral claim slavery that that sort of thing so it, it does have a wide application but just because something has a wide application doesn't mean it's it's false um you know so if i as long as i can establish as long as it's an equally plausible explanation which you said to your mind it is uh, it doesn't matter whether you like it. That that defeats your justification for making the claim that God is immoral. You you should just be on the fence and say, well, maybe God's immoral, or maybe that Molinistic defeater thing that I hate is, and think it's stupid. Maybe that's true. Uh, you you have no way of deciding um, from an epistemic standpoint. Does that does that make sense? It it does make sense. I'm. I'm still at the objection, objecting to the the Molinistic defeater stage, so any justification of it is going to have a hard time with me. But I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, and and yeah, and you, you could. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, oh, no, you no, go. You've got the mic. This is uh, you're asking us, but I have taken some notes here, and I do want to talk about this. But you finish your thought, please. Um. So yeah, so yeah, and uh, and I want to make clear it it is like I I've given multiple components that are in my Molinistic defeater. It, it is possible, and I I don't know why Val, like I've asked Val to you know wh which element do you think is in, improbable? It, this should be easy for you to defeat, and there are you can show that it's improbable that God exists. Uh, some skeptics try to do that, right? Uh, they make a positive claim, or you could show that libertarian free will isn't true. Um, that there are multiple aspects incorporated in my Molinistic defeater that a skeptic who wants to claim the improbable God hypothesis is true, that they can defeat my Molinistic defeater by showing one or more elements are improbable. So, so it is possible for, you know, my, my Molinistic defeater isn't a get out of jail free card no matter what. There are possible ways a skeptic can come back on it. It's just, I've never... For whatever reason, no one ever wants to do that. Um, but yeah, it is possible, and there are skeptics out there that that do tackle those elements. So I'll turn it over to Andrew. So let me go at one of those. You talked about wide application. The moment this has wide application, but it seems to me that that's exactly one of the grounds it fell on. 
Because if the notion of the Molinistic Defeater is that God can look down the line of history and work things to his good, one of the things that, that I can do is look at the number of times when something bad was done and analyze for my own self the good that came out of it versus the evil that came out of it. Although I'm using good and evil for the benefit of our mutual conversation. I don't actually agree that, that acts are good and evil in that sense. Yeah. And we can talk yeah. about that at some other time, but that's a convenience, if you will, for this conversation, if that's okay with all three of us. Cool, yeah. Yeah, careful. Okay, okay. So if you're saying that God has this this knowledge, first of all, to, to presume that he does, I think is over-presumption. First, you'd have to you'd have to demonstrate, it. and and to demonstrate it, you'd have to say you had it. But rather than rather than chasing that prong of the argument, mm-hmm. uh, I am willing to just say that my experience does not lead me to believe that there is any such thing as middle knowledge, and that seems to me to be as good a claim based on uh, the fact that I can see what harm is done to people and how many people that affects and how little good comes out of those things. And based on the knowledge that I can accumulate as a human, it does not seem to me to be likely that there is any such thing as a Molinistic defeater. And if you are going to say that there is a Molinistic defeater, you have got to stack up the evidence in such a way that it defeats my observations. Otherwise, I have a set of observations on which I depend and you have a claim upon which you defend that doesn't have equal evidence. Okay, so so here's how, and, and that's perfectly fair. There, there's another aspect. You can attack and show that it's improbable that God has omniscience or or middle knowledge sure. or whatever. Yep, absolutely. By the way, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that to me is the problem with the Molinistic Cathedral. Okay. So I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that's yeah. how I would... And if I were Val, if I had been in those conversations, uh, com- yeah. Val, by the way, for the listeners, is a guy that Dale and I interact with on another discussion board. Uh, Val is an eminently reasonable guy, yeah. and uh, we hope to have him on one day. But if I had been Val, that is how I would have gone after this conversation. Okay, so so here's how I'd respond. Number one, um, you misstated that. I, I don't have to prove God has middle knowledge. If it's just a defeater, a digger objection, I just have... To say maybe this is true, and if you think it's equally possible, um, and, and you're challenging that you don't, but in Matt's case, he thinks it is equally possible, then I've defeated your claim that the immoral God hypothesis is true. Now, responding to your, your okay, you're trying to say that actually I think this is improbable uh, based on the knowledge that you have. Um, so two things. So number one, your, your knowledge base is obviously inadequate to to make that kind of a judgment um is it it is because you, because you don't your your finite your finitude in terms of your knowledge is such that you do not have the ability to make an overall judgment in the same way that a proposed omniscient a god would and let, let me just finish um let me just finish let me illustrate let me illustrate um okay and i don't even need to go to to demonstrate the finitude of your your uh, objection. Forget about future benefits or, or salvage. You know, my my answer with my molestic defeater is that 
I don't know if, if you know if your audience is unbelievable people or if you have like your own separate where they come no, from. We have not built our audience based on their Okay, so this will be new for them. So my my moral justification and my Molinistic defeater, the the end goal is that God wants to save as many uh, free creatures or souls as possible. So this is the the end result that justifies why there have to be uh, actions that compromise the moral ideal, like killing people in the Old Testament or that sort of thing. So we have no way of, you, no human being has any way of adjudicating that end goal which takes precedence. But even, even for, forget all of that for a second, let's just say up to, up to now, uh, and pure earthly consequences even. Um, let's say the actions of Caligula. I think in isolation we'd all say, yeah, that was a bad guy. Uh, I don't like Caligula too much, but um, <laughs> uh, at least in his late in the later part, once he started going a bit insane. But um, yeah, w would you, based on how can you determine whether that was overall good or bad to allow Caligula to to do his thing? Like what what you have no way of assessing the chains of causation. Okay, when he slaughtered, uh, when he raped the wives of the the Roman senators. Uh, what causal chains came out of that in terms of good and bad consequences? Like, yeah, how would you even assess something like that just on that one action? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, that, uh, yeah, I was just wondering. Fair question. Okay. Yeah, so, so you're absolutely right. Let, let me ask you a question. Are you also finite? Yes. Okay, so we do agree that we are both finite. Matthew, are you finite? As far as I'm aware. I don't know if uh, David okay. J would say that. He seems to think he's uh, infinite. <laughs> well, I, 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 am, I am not bashing my friend David. Oh, neither am I. He knows, well, I he knows me. I to have such a digital presence when I die. I might as well be immortal. Okay. <laughs> if, I am, if I am finite. Yeah. If I am finite. I, and, and I agree that I am. Mm. And here's why I agree that I am for the listeners who might believe in universal consciousness. As far as I can tell, I have a beginning, and everything else leads me to believe I have an end. So I am finite. Even, even if I were perfectly knowledgeable and all-powerful for this moment in time, I still have a beginning and an end, so I'm finite. Okay, now, having gotten through all of that, you're finite as far as I know. Matthew is finite as far as I know. Although Matthew, you know, we, we might, he, he might, out, he might outlive us, so that's finite. But here's what we got. I can't make the claim that there is a middle knowledge. Mm -hmm. Because I'm finite. Now, you could claim middle knowledge, and I would have no better access to demonstrate that you're wrong, except that I think you're finite. And until someone can demonstrate to me perfectly that there is such a thing as middle knowledge, what I have to go on is my observations that bad acts generally have bad repercussions. And you can make all of the middle claims that you want, but until you can demonstrate to me that there is something beyond the finite aspects that I have that is so superior to mine that they can be considered perfect middle knowledge, I have no reason to accept it. Wrong, actually. So here's why um, I say wrong. Number one, again, you're, you're shifting the burden of proof to me. I don't have to prove Molinism is true, right? It, it's, it's equally possible until you, as the original claimant, uh, advancing the immoral god hypothesis. You said that, no, Wait, no, you what? said that middle knowledge 
is the thing that allows God to be the perfect moral. In fact, you said this in the run-up. Not, not in the run-up to the show, but in the run-up to this part of the argument. That God chose this world mm-hmm. out of all of the possible worlds that he could have chosen. And that this Molinistic defeater is part of this world that if God had multiple worlds that he could have created, this is the one that he could have created, and the Molinistic defeater is the thing that gets him off the hook. No, it's not. That was the claim in the run-up, in, in the paragraphs uh, before this conversation. Okay, okay, so then you misunderstood. I, I'm not making a claim. Again, I, I could. I do believe this, and I could try, I could actually make it a claim and try to demonstrate it, but... In order for the purposes of this combo, I don't have to do that to defeat your original argument that cr- I'm not making a claim with my Molinistic defeater for our purposes here. Um, I'm just proposing this as a, a level playing field option. And even with our finite knowledge, we we know that it's equally possible, unless there's some reason to think it's improbable, that an omniscient god with middle knowledge could provide a moral justification for such actions. Um, that is I mean, that is, oh, okay. that is the thing that I'm going after here. Because every bit of history that I read says that bad acts do more harm than they do good. That's why, in fact, we try not... That's why we teach people not to do bad things. We don't teach people not to do bad things because God has some Molinistic defeater or middle knowledge out there. We teach people not to do bad things because bad acts tend to beget bad acts. And so everything that I have at my disposal suggests first that there is no such thing as a middle knowledge creator out there that chose this world out of a myriad of possibilities. But furthermore, whether there is a greater knowledge out there or not, I don't have access to it. And any claim of falls to the idea of the knowledge that I do have and can you can make a claim about additional knowledge all that you want but I have the knowledge I have yeah and, but and per, that is the per, knowledge I have to act on okay so Mikey, what do you think? oh sorry oh, I'm sorry I was not trying to thank Mike okay no no um yeah I just okay I'll, I'll quickly respond so I you're absolutely right but you're wrong in one thing your our finite knowledge doesn't claim that bad acts always lead, or mo- even most of the time, lead to bad consequences. I, I don't think we have a way of judging that, especially as you expand the time factor. I, I mean, in the, in the yeah, I, I think we don't have a way of really adjudicating whether the fact that uh, Caligula, you know, what, what impact did Caligula raping the wives of the Roman senators have 300 years later in terms of that causal chain that that progressed through people's free will so i don't think you know apart from the immediate uh future and and we do have actual examples from the bible like salvation history um where good things result from seemingly bad consequences and that sort of thing so it's not just simple yeah that 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 would be something that is absolutely right. So why don't we own slaves anymore? Yeah, because I think, so we've come to knowledge that that is wrong to do, and we're going based on that finite knowledge. Our moral consciences give us knowledge that we believe this is wrong. 
However, why don't don't we uh, promote misogynistic societies anymore? Why do we want women to be? Uh, same same reason. Um, however, I, I would not say the same about necessarily in the past. It was bad for them to do it from an overall God's eye perspective type thing. It, it may be that we would never have arrived at the state that we're in today where women do enjoy these egalitarian rights and, and we do realize just how bad slavery is if we didn't go through you know, the, the horrendous American slavery or something, for example, forget about biblical stuff, but maybe we needed to see how horrible, uh, some people make the argument in terms of world. we didn't, right, but I mean, you're making a middle knowledge claim and you're saying maybe. Yeah. And I am absolutely saying we don't do slavery anymore because we know it's bad and we don't promote misogynistic societies anymore because we know they're bad. And what you're saying is in response, but maybe it would have worked out differently sometimes in history, and that is why I am saying I have I have access to the knowledge I have, yeah. and all of the knowledge that I have leads me to think that we don't do bad things, and we encourage our progeny not to do bad things because we know bad leads to bad. Mm-hmm. And what you've got in response right now is maybe y- yes, uh, and that and that's all that's needed. But I, I get your point. There is an important. I don't think it is. <laughs> there, okay, no, no. There is there is a good point though. Yeah, we we do operate on finite knowledge. You know, all else being equal, for all I know, it's it's good to save the baby from the burning car fire. As as Smalley's, you know, kind of stuck it to Justin Briley there. But in an overall context, from God's eye perspective, it might actually be good to let that child burn. Um, so in general, the, we follow our general moral principles unless we have justification to exempt them. So divine revelation, if I have, you know, it's part of the biblical story, even as a finite person, I have knowledge that God is commanding or responsible for these deaths. God is claimed to be omniscient and and all of that. So in light of that knowledge, that's the additional piece. That's an equal possibility. I'm not saying it's it's true uh, necessarily for this in order to defeat the thing, but it's equally possible that an omniscient God providing me divine knowledge can counteract what in general, you know, in general, I'm running to save that baby from the car. Um, so there is that additional difference. Uh, but yeah, I, I know Matt wanted to come in, so. Yeah, please. Yeah, there's, there's lots um, I, I want to say, but um, for brevity, I'm, I'm just gonna stick with one point. I'm, I, I still just don't like the, um, the middle knowledge, Molinistic, the defeat of it's, it's really unconvincing to me. And to my, the, my earlier criticism of it, it, it still stands. In fact, I'm going to go a little bit stronger. And I, I think the argument uh, is quite objectionable. And uh, it's probably one of the reasons why I so dislike listening to William Lane Craig. And I apologize for the ad hominem hat I've just made there, but that, that's, that gives you an indication of the strength that I feel about it. Um, so the point I'll, I'll make is, as a parent and as somebody who's at yeah, a time in my past has worked as a, as a youth leader, the young people that I have been responsible for in the past and I am responsible for now, look to me to, um, as, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, as a role model. If I say something is is not good to do or something is bad to do or that is wrong to do 
they they look to me uh, as a role model and I need to behave in a way that is consistent with the instructions that I give and there are many times when I've been pulled up on that by by my daughter because I haven't acted in ways that are consistent with the commands that I give and and that is fair you know a child is within their rights to call me uh, or or any parent or responsible adult uh, to task for for not behaving in because and so and children aren't taught that observation they pick up that observation as as part of growing up and so i think it is fair for us as humans to translate that same logic into a a god that we are told uh, exists and I, and I think the monistic defeater fails that that basic test. And if that's not good enough for you, consider this. There are many people out there, people I know personally, who have given up on Christianity for that very reason. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can point you at somebody I know whose mother suffered terribly. She was a Christian mother. She loved her God wonderfully, and he admired her faith and the things that she did in the name of her God. But she didn't have a wonderful life. She suffered some atrocities in her life, and she died way too young of one of the worst cancers you could possibly get. And he and I talking about it, and he said to me, I cannot believe in the God that she believed in because of this. And I don't care who, whatever anyone says to me about them being a greater good. I do not see the good, I see the evil, and I see the pain, and I physically cannot believe in that God. And I think when there are people who respond in that way to the things that they see, and they are unconvinced by the Molinistic defeater because they are, they just don't find it acceptable in their situation, I think that is good enough to reject it utterly and completely. Mm. Okay, for, um, okay, fair enough. I. I respect this this strong emotional response to it. I, I don't I don't think it's relevant logically or whatever. But I mean, we are emotional beings, and I have to recognize that there there is this uh, spiritual element. Obviously, from a Christian standpoint, I, I think it's because of the result of sin that you have this strong objection. And I I could give my own personal tale of what. You know, Molinism has a strong emotional component for me as well. Um, I'm not going to get into the story, but uh, yeah, it, it. You are welcome to, by the way. If, if you'd like to tell part of that story, you are. Yeah, can I just give a to. give a time check? We're we're closing in on two hours, so can okay. I just uh, That's give a time check on that? But by all means, tell the story. I I I, I don't want to actually. I, I don't okay. feel. That's fine. That's uh, fine. Just don't object. Don't, but don't yeah. Um, yeah, so, but I'll just say that um, it, it is something that Molinism, this answer is something that I find uh, both intellectually satisfying, but at the same time emotionally uh, comforting. It, it, it Actually, I like it. Um, even if, it, if I found out it was true, I would be disappointed because I, I like this. It, it, it's something that made a lot of sense to me and, and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, I can give sort of my own my own take on that from the opposite side. I think that it, it's good emotionally on both. It could be good emotionally as well. But the the ultimate point, uh, since we're coming to the to the end, I think that we all agree that 
Look, it is the skeptic who bears the original, the burden of proof to prove the improbable God hypothesis. And if, on a purely intellectual level, if, if the Molinistic defeater is equally possible, um, then we, can't, we shouldn't decide between them. Uh, unless you have a way to show that the Molinistic defeater isn't actually on a level paying field, it's improbable, as, as Andrew was trying to provide some arguments why he thinks it's an improbable option. You can never even know it's probable, my friend. I can know it's you equally can possible. You, you, you can. Can, can, I, can I just jump in on, sorry, uh, Andrew? Oh, um, no, um, go ahead. In, in terms of the, the, the probability, etc., I, I think I poorly explained myself earlier about, about the, the evil god. The, the proposal on the table is, here's the evidence, you know, the, the earth was flooded, etc. Therefore, the, this god uh, is, is unlikely. So the Molinistic defeater is, is Improbable. A, a good god knows a, a, a better way. My counter, which is of equal probability to the Molinistic defeater, but it neither of them are of equal probability to the original claim is that it actually it could be just as easily be an evil god doing evil things so you've got now you've got two gods sure. who are facing one set of one claim sure so you've got the original claim you know a good uh, the god can't exist because these acts are not consistent with a god and now you've got two gods in proposal facing that yep. the good god who knows better things or the evil god who likes to mess around sure and yep. We could add an almost infinite number of potential gods when you lined up there. So let's say we've got 100 billion imaginary gods lined up there. You know, which one of those are you going to pick? Because combined together, they all equal the original claim. So now you've got this ridiculous situation of none of them are likely. Well, it's not that they're not. Yes, they're all equal, equally possible. Great, great point. Yeah, that it was... I don't believe that in the maximal evil god, Molinistic, you know, my evil Molinistic defeater, uh, evil god Molinistic defeater, let's call it. Yeah, that that could be an equally possible option, just based on these sets of facts that we're discussing here. Um, so I would, if I want to advance a claim, if I'm that the good god is true, then I would need to defeat the immoral god or the god doesn't exist things as being improbable. But if I'm just saying I'm not making a claim, then yeah, we've got these three options on the table. Uh, I don't decide between them uh, or whoever many infinite things you got. But what? just before we go, I, I did want to ask you a question, just, just, just Matt. Those, the three options, it's one option and of equal value to that one option are the others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, okay. that, that's my point. Yeah, that's always been no, my no, point. I, I'm not sure I've still made myself clear. Oh. They're not all three of equal value. The oh, other two not. added together equal the third one, equal the original one. Oh, That's what I'm saying. Well, I don't you've got understand. the original claim, this is the evidence, and then you've got the counterclaims. The counterclaims added together equal the original option. So it's equally That's probable that either a good god or a bad god exist. Yes, but those two options added together, together equal the original claim. Okay, well, I, I, I still think that could serve my point. It was just you'd have to re rephrase it as the Molinistic defeater is a maximal being, and you don't distinguish between their nature or something like that. Um, 
still that that defeats your original claim that there is no god because this ref, you know reflects human commands or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I did want to I did want to ask oh, Matt. Sorry, I, I did want to ask Matt one quick question. Um, so Matt, um, I already asked Andrew this, but uh, part of my smally thing, I, I just wanted to say with moral principles like a principle of life, for example, that that is being claimed to be violated here however you define that ethical ethical principle societal principle i don't give it a fig uh, i'll go with whatever you say it is um if there i think that the principle would state we preserve or protect life um so long as there's uh, unless there's a moral justification for not doing so so killing in self-defense is a moral justification that exempts the general principle uh wars that sort of thing um, I have a, a thought experiment um, based on special knowledge. So let's say you're a history professor and you travel back in time to the year 1889. You retain all of your knowledge from the future, um, but the process that took you back, you have no way of demonstrating that you are actually from the future to anyone else around you. They think you're a nutball uh, and they'll lock you up and that sort of thing. You, it comes to your knowledge that you are seeing little innocent baby Hitler. Um, now, pretending all else will be equal, forget about negative, just for the sake of argument, pretend there are no detrimental temporal effects for you changing history or anything. It, it, all that would happen is you will prevent World War II and the killing of millions of people, and nothing negative will come about. Uh, let's just pretend we could somehow know that. Do you kill baby Hitler based on your special knowledge of the future or not? Um... I don't know, uh, to be honest. Okay. Um, what I do know from history is there were other things that Hitler was interested in. I think one of them was art or something like that. So, but you're saying baby, so I probably have limited uh, option. I would rather it would be catching up with him at an older age to try to redirect his life to be more productively into the arts, and that might change things. Um, or I also know that he was involved in. Uh, in World War One, it was a, a private or something in World War One. So I, I might want to go there to try to change something positively uh, at that point. I'm, I, I, I really don't know. It's, it's something that I'm uncomfortable with the idea of doing. Um, I'm not sure if I am emotionally tied strong enough to want to do it. No, there are. There are, there are probably other people um, who are more tied to the events of World War II who might feel differently to me. But, yeah. um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, yeah, it, it sounds like a dodge, and I, I'm aware that it sounds like a dodge. But I, I'm uncomfortable with the idea. But I, yeah, so I, okay. I, I don't know. Okay, yeah, f fair enough. And that, that's cool. I, I already asked Andrew. It, his answer was yes with a caveat. Uh, David was absolutely yes, and mine is absolutely yes. If, if I could know all else would be equal, and I've got this special knowledge um, given, to, given to me from, from being from the future, yes, I would do that, all else being equal. If all else couldn't be equal, then my answer is no. Um, so, so yeah, I could, I could avoid your dodge by just you know rephrasing it and saying something like, oh, well, 
uh, you know, it's it, you either got to choose one or the other. If you don't, uh, if you don't do it, then World War II and the killing of the Jews will result, no matter what you do, uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, I, I get that you're sort of sort of skittish on that, but that's a fair fair question, and I think it provides some of the nuance. Just replace being a time tra having knowledge from being a time traveler, and let's say you're the you're Hitler's daddy, and God reveals to you through a form of special knowledge that the future and you've got these two options i would say yeah killing in that case would be worth it so i think that's a, a good thought experiment that could show the plausibility um of my molinistic answer so yeah uh, that's all i've got on my end I... yeah it's, it's, it's a tough one that one you know um yeah I was, I was going to jump into a story but we haven't got time for stories like stories can wait um but yeah it it's a tough one maybe i would if I if I knew it all and I was there, cool. I, I, it's easy when I'm sitting here in the comfort of my living room to to take a moral high ground, but I yeah. I don't know. Cool, cool, yeah. Uh, so yeah, my I, my, um, my caveat there, uh, Dale's talking about the conversation that we had um, offline, and to be fair, my caveat to that story was if there's no way for me to presume that all other things can be non-equal, and the the reason was that in the case of the Holocaust, I'm not saying that it's impossible for this to be true in other examples, but it can't be true in the Holocaust because the outcome is leaving six million people more in the world after 1945 or not having six million more people in the world after 1945. It's, if I can and, just correct you there, it was only six million Jews, it was 24 million Russians and... Um, Something else. LGBTQ, handicapped people. It wasn't. You're absolutely right. And my total apologies to anyone who is listening, uh, who was of Polish descent or, or non-Jewish and caught up in the Holocaust. I am. I am not forgetting you, even though it sounds like I was. What I am saying is that my caveat today, all offline, was that I can't take the example as being uh, as being one um, where all other things could possibly be equal as an outcome because we're talking about 24 million thinking back 24 million deaths versus 24 million lives yeah and and, and, and more you know the, the numbers are almost impossible to imagine right and by the way Dale you know that I wasn't we talked about this, but for the listeners, I, I was not trying to be unfair to your example, and maybe it was my inability to simply think that other, you know, all other things could be equal, right? So maybe I'm just deficient in imagination there, but that was my caveat. Right? Yeah, no, and I'll, I'll just say I agree with you that all else couldn't be equal, so that's why my real answer would be no, but yeah, it, it, just go along with the spirit. Uh, pretend that's yeah. not a factor. Then absolutely, and we yes. Got to that, I think. Yeah. Together, I think in the conversation we we got to that. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, I think I think that that covers everything on on my end. Uh, yeah, if you guys have anything else to to say, but yeah, I think that kind of illustrates the points of what I wanted to get across with the burden of proof. Because I notice in a lot of conversation with skeptics the there seems to be like a shifting and that sort of thing. So I, I really hope that all of us, whether Christian or skeptic, atheist, whatever, 
let's try to be cognizant of who is bearing the burden of proof, uh, when are we making claims or not. Um, yeah, that, that's sort of my hope in doing this. How did you feel about, uh, in this conversation specifically, did you feel like there was a reasonable, I know there were you know, small moments of disagreement or whatever, but did you feel like we had gotten to some agreement on burden of proof? Yes. Because you've been concerned in the past that skeptics do try to simply always leave Christians with the burden of proof. I will say to the listeners that I think that's wholly unfair. When I make an affirmative claim, I think it's my job to back up that claim. Did, did you feel in this conversation like there was any meeting of the minds? Yes, I do, absolutely. I, I think the majority was a meeting of the minds in terms of the, the fundamental point of when do we bear the burden of proof and that sort of thing. I, I think I think we agree actually in, in all cases. Um, we, we don't agree with the details as to, um, you know, for example, with the Molinistic Defeater, you guys are providing reasons why you think it's improbable. So I don't agree with those reasons. But on the underlying point, we both agree that that's the proper way to tell if the Molinistic Defeater is successful in defeating an original claim. So, you know, that that's more just a, a matter of getting into it and, and arguing about, well, is it improbable or not? Uh, but in terms of approaching it, yeah, we agree 100%. Matthew, are we down to closing? Yeah, we are. Let's um, do a close. But I just like wanted to echo uh, Dale's comments. Yeah, I think we are. It's been been useful comments. It's slightly more technical than I uh, anticipated, but I think the nature of philosophy is that is likely to be the result um, but yeah we uh, it does appear that we all agree that if somebody makes a, a positive statement then they need to have some kind of evidence to support it mm-hmm. yeah fair enough so Dale I'm going to leave you and Matthew with the closing uh, with the closing thoughts after I say this my particular epistemology depends on this confirmation. You and I talked about this in a, in a previous conversation. And because I am a finite creature, because I only have a limited viewpoint, I cannot do two things. I cannot make a universal absolute claim on behalf of myself, nor can I necessarily accept a universal absolute claim on behalf of another. The reason I can't is because I'm a finite creature and I would never know whether they were right or wrong. They could simply deceive me and I would have no way of knowing. And that is why the scientific method depends on the principle of disconfirmation. It's why it depends on the the, uh, sort of the principle of harmony, the things that we can reproduce together. That's why we want external objective evidence. And it's why I'm willing to say that in my case, when I look at the facts of history or or the patterns in history that I think I perceive, and I try to make judgments about why we instruct children to do less harm than they do good, we do that because our best finite efforts 
lead us to believe that good acts generally beget more good acts and bad acts don't beget as many good acts as good acts do. I do only have a finite um, ability to comprehend and um, you know many people might say it's more finite than others. I'll accept I'll accept that criticism in totality but it is why I personally can't accept uh, that there's such a thing as middle knowledge. And it's why when we talk about burden of proof, uh, when I accept the burden of proof, I depend on hard evidence, stuff that we can agree on together with our finite minds. And so when there's a claim that is a non-finite claim. It is outside for me the idea of burden of proof, making a claim that can't be falsified, and that claim can't be considered as being evidence in regard to burden of proof. That's my close. Thank you for that. I won't add to that. That matched my, my thoughts, so I'm cool with that. Before we get to the final question for you, Dale, were there any closing thoughts you wanted to give? Um, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess based on Andrew's closing, yeah, I, I can respect um, the desire to have uh, a means to confirm or disconfirm uh, your beliefs uh, and that sort of thing, and or claims. And and if you are in fact making a claim, you you should have a way of confirming that. Uh, I think there are different forms of evidences, so I wouldn't hold to empirical evidence is the only way. Um, uh, but yeah, I would just say, look, the, the principle of falsification or disconfirmation is not the sole arbiter of truth. Things can be true even if they're not disconfirmable. And, and you know, even even in, in science or... Um, or history, there are, there are elements where we can't necessarily disconfirm things, um, but yet we can have knowledge. Um, yeah, okay, I want to think that over now. Um, I, I want to, can you, will you come back? Uh, look, we are all friends here, and we've been friends for a little while now. I would love to have you back over that very idea how we know what we know because we can't do it right now and there is the you brought up the idea that there are things there are truths that we can't know are true maybe that's worth a shorter conversation because now now we're down into epistemology and ontology again and uh, so it's up to Matthew because Matthew really guides these things but I welcome that conversation because I think that one's a good one too Cool. If you're up for it, we can arrange it. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds cool. good for me. Yeah, I know I've got a, a thing with Darren too on scientism because he's uh, an advocate of that. Uh, so, so yeah, it's who, who, who's that? Oh, one one of the listeners, Darren Lute, um, of Skeptics. I recognize and the name. He he leaves a lot of comments on uh, Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, hmm. He's one oh, of the yeah, main. I think I've seen yeah. So. So. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I'm up. I'm always up for epistemology, and hopefully your your audience likes this. I know I got a bit too technical and stuff like that, so I'll try to simplify it a bit next time uh, I'm on. So yeah. No, 
and uh, well, I'll, I'll leave my apology there too. If I was uh, if I was overly aggressive in the conversation, my apologies. It would have been that way because you and I are friends, and we don't mind uh, challenging each other. Yeah, so. yeah. I didn't notice it, so yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, listeners, happy to have your feedback on that. Um, are are we all ready for the final question, then, Dale? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So the tradition is every guest needs to needs to is invited to yeah tell us who their favorite Bible character is. So Dale, would you like to reveal? Sure. So my favorite. Um, so obviously, as a as a Christian, I would I would have to say Jesus because he's God in the flesh. But um, if I'm just being like for, forget about it in the context of being a Christian, I find the most fascinating person to be the Apostle Paul. Um, I've I've uh, been I've always had sort of a romanticized view of him um, and that sort of thing. But yeah, I just find him fascinating as a as a historical figure uh, whether Christianity is true or not um, uh, you know like this this is a man who traveled by foot and was the apostle to the Gentiles and, and really uh, was a, as a was an initiator and, and zealous for what he believed was true and you know he was he didn't always come across uh, in the best way or communicate uh, in ways that won him uh, a lot of fans at times, um, but yeah, he, his commit, his underlying commitment to the truth and that drive for, um, you know, to spread the truth for for the sake of God's uh, kingdom has he's always been an inspirational figure to me and a fascinating historical person. Mm. Yeah, yeah and, and victim of multiple shipwrecks as well. I understand. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Yep, um, and, and survivor of snake. Yes, that uh, I wasn't. Yeah, it, obviously the miracle things; those aren't unique necessarily to Paul. But um, yeah, it's 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 not even. A, I'm not even speaking as a religious adherent. Like, forget the miracle. I'm I'm just saying as a historical figure. Even if, even before I was a Christian, I would have said Paul is, is someone I would have always liked to meet and just get to know and stuff like that. I don't know if you guys know. Um, there was a show, A.D., uh, The Bible Continues, that was on a few years back. I don't know if you guys, you probably wouldn't have watched, watched that. No, I, I don't know of it. Okay. It, was it, where, who was the producer? Uh, I mean, Roma, what, Roma what, Downey, the Touched by the Angel girl, or person. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it, basically it, it takes you through Acts. The reason I liked it is because it, you know, it's, it starts after, at the resurrection or crucifixion of Jesus and then takes you through the early chapters of Acts or whatever, and the portrayal of uh, Paul uh, there I found really compelling. I, uh, for whatever reason, I, I like the way they portrayed Paul in that, and that, that's the way I view view him based on my readings of the Bible and that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah check that out. And what was the series again? Uh, it's A.D. The Bible Continues. A.D. The Bible Continues. I'll try to leave a, if I can find it, I'll try to leave a link to it in the show notes or... Or uh, send it to Matthew. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Th thanks for having me on then. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, that's another two hour episode. Thank you to the listeners for bearing with us. We'll be back with you for something else. We're hoping, if all if the plans all come together, the next episode will be with a bit of a twist. Uh, the, 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 it all will be revealed when it gets uploaded. Um, and um, with, with that said, Good night, and I nearly said God bless. This has been Ask an Atheist Anything. Happy listening, and goodbye.
All right. Well, that's been the that's the entire episode there. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, once again, thank you very much to Andrew and Matt for inviting me on to their show, asking atheist anything as a guest to discuss that issue. Um, you know, the burden of proof and when does the atheist uh, have it? Uh, that's a topic that was very important to me because I find in our conversations between skeptics and Christians that that often gets confused. So, so yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed the show, that show and please uh, check out Ask an Atheist Anything. Go to the, the reasonpress.net website or check them out on Anchor. Um, and yeah, have a great night. Bye-bye.